because have you met Dutch men? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Friday, May 10th, 2019, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Dutch News contributing editor and newly minted bookstore owner, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News and broken old man. Missing today is our personal taxi chauffeur, Paul Paters, who has been conspicuously absent since the police arrested a serial killer this week. But they have circulated a photograph, so... uh... It's you know it's a it's a grainy photo honestly yeah, it could so be anybody it could be anybody yeah so um you're so, a you're a broken old man well so you tell me that's that's no. what you've been telling <laughs> all of us on every social media this isn't platform. quite true I've been very restrained about it given the <laughs> immense pain I've been in for the last uh, couple of weeks because we haven't been around for two weeks yeah the first thing to say we haven't recorded no, we've we been, didn't record last yeah, week yeah we yeah. didn't record last week so, I appear to have ruptured uh, a hernia which is one of these things that happens to you when you get into your forties it's one of those fun things about getting older that they don't tell you about in school yeah. Two weeks ago when we recorded, I was in pretty severe pain. It has got better, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty horrible aspect of uh, middle age. A friend of mine is a physiotherapist that thinks it's a, a herniated disc at the base of the spine, a lumbar disc, and wow. it just causes an awful lot of pain shooting up and down the leg. So I'm not running, I'm not cycling, I'm generally quite grumpy. Grumpier than usual? Even even grumpier wow. than usual. The good thing is that I've now been sent to the physiotherapist, and of course this is a country that is just full of physiotherapists. Yeah, they love their physiotherapists <laughs> They love it, they here, really man. go in for yeah. physiotherapy. Yeah. I, just, I, mean, I was kind of aware of that vaguely, but you really, there really is literally one on every street corner. It's, yeah. it's like hairdressers in Glasgow or something. It's, yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, but the real question is, is, are you in enough pain to have garnered any sort of actual medication yeah this is the doctor. other thing the reason I, I knew it was really serious when I went to the doctor and she told me to take something stronger than paracetamol that's insane <laughs> that's just crazy yeah so she told me to take something yeah, ibuprofen which I did have I also managed to procure some codeine from an unspecified source <laughs> <laughs> that may or may not be my mother who's, prior, prior <laughs> who's to visiting the, at the time prior to the recording of this podcast Gordon and I as all good internationals in this country do we're discussing at which illegal source we get our pain medication from because yeah. the Dutch doctors will not give us any so yeah indeed but yeah when she referred me to the physiotherapist and then looked up and there's uh, the map just filled up with, uh, with physiotherapists you cannot move in this country for physiotherapists which is kind of ironic when you think about it <laughs> thank you been working on that day for a while <laughs> yeah, yeah. so yeah tell us about how you c- came to own your own personal bookshop in your house i have a problem <laughs> that's, that's what i have <laughs> my name's molly and, and I'm a... i have a problem i am an addict no i've been uh, i've been away for two weeks so the first week i was on a vacation in ibiza uh and last week i was uh in dublin for work and while i was in dublin my hotel was around the corner from a really fantastic secondhand bookshop mm. where i proceeded to spend all of my time and money um and then proceeded to find several other bookstores uh throughout the city so shout out to uh, chapters and the Winding Staircase, which Ooh. were fantastic bookshops Good in names Dublin. as well. Highly recommend going there. Yeah. Um, Chapters in particular is huge and has like a giant secondhand selection. Um, so I spent a lot of money. And uh, my partner flew in for the weekend and I basically told him to come with an empty suitcase because <laughs> essentially my books filled up all of my suitcase. So how much weight did that take up in your baggage allowance? I don't know. Fortunately, we were flying KLM, who's like right. not real stingy with the weight thing. So I think if we'd been on EasyJet or something, it might have been an actual yeah. problem. But of course, to make matters worse rather than better, I have been in court uh, in The Hague this week and took one lunch break to pop into the city center and mm-hmm. go to the ABC, the superior ABC, uh, the location in The 
hang and then proceeded to buy more books yesterday. Yeah. So it's gotten kind of out of control in my living room. Yeah, so your living room is now just basically stuffed with books. It's pretty much just yeah, a bookstore. Yeah, even though you make a point of not not keeping Even books. though I don't yeah. own books, right? Because yeah. I, I do not keep them. Once I read them, I give them away. Yeah. Um, but you now just have a huge, massive to-read to pile. Yeah, the to-read pile is really a problem. And what's worse is there's a huge, massive to-read pile in the living room. And there's shamefully a box hidden in the closet right by the <laughs> podcast recording studio of other to-be-read books. Uh-huh. I have a lot of time. I remember the days when I used to read. Did you? I, Just before I, you had kids. I do vaguely remember yeah. them. Yeah. I feel like they were a uh, long I, time ago. I like buy before. books. I buy books now, or I get books as presents. I think, yeah, that that I'm looking forward to reading that in 2025. Yeah, I mean, it helps that uh, I've been on two vacations this year with my partner's family, yeah, where I basically have done nothing but read. Um, so, despite Paul's absence, yes, yeah, so did doing, sub- doing unspecified things due to unspecified things. Yeah. <laughs> he did send us an alpef. Yes. Um. He so he has written an alpef for us. Are you going to read it? I'll read, read it. it? Yeah. You read yeah. it. All right, Gordon. Yeah. Tell us about the alpef. Okay. So this week, Prime Minister Mark Rutte invited a delegation of. Uh, five of the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, or the gele heches, as they're known in Dutch. It sounds better in French. It it does. And yeah. Most things do. To his uh, to his office, uh, the Torrentier, uh, which doesn't have a French name. NOS was present when they arrived. as all a great big kind of photo shoot and publicity stunt for Ritter to show that he was in touch with the you know, concerns of the common people. But the footage unfortunately showed that two of the five people pointedly refused to shake Ritter's hand when they went into his office. One of them refused to shake hands, and the other yeah. one, you're going to tell us. Well, so yeah, one just didn't take his hand, but the other one walked in just pretending to be on the phone. It was know, with the phone clamped to the ear. It Not really crazy. talking into it, it but crazy. just looking as if they were on the phone madness. and just deliberately avoiding eye contact and looking like they were too busy to talk to the Prime Minister. And this caused major op-hef on social media. One group said this behaviour was very rude. Others said they understood that Gilets Jaunes didn't want to shake the hand of, quote, the enemy, oh. even though he'd invited them into his office to talk to them. Right. Rotterdam's leader of the Gilets Jaunes has now, was so annoyed by it that he now felt that it had smeared the good name the Gele Hesches forevermore and he's now decided to wear a different colour vest. So from now on, the Rotterdam yellow vests will be called the orange. Orange vest. This is the most and they will wear orange vest. This is the one the great. It's one of those great Judean people's front moments. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Was it rude? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was rude. rude. I think it was pretty rude. And yeah. Given that he, he'd actually... It's not like that they met him in the street or something. You yeah. know, he'd actually organised a meeting. Yeah. Where he'd, he'd taken time out from his schedule to talk to them in his office. The least he could do is shake his hand. Yeah. Yeah, even if you don't agree with him. Yeah, and I don't... I don't know. This kind of goes to like a broader, I think, issue in society, especially with some of these populist groups, where like it seems to me that like the rhetoric for a lot of things has like ratcheted up to like 120 you know, degrees. And that instead of acknowledging that like Mark Rutte is a politician who is doing his job, even if you disagree with his viewpoints, that they sort of make him out to be someone you shouldn't shake hands with. And I feel like if you're going to be that rude, you should save it for like actual Hitler. I also just generally think, why show up to the meeting? Yeah, this is also the point. If that's all you're going to do, you know, if if you just want to, don't want to participate, this is a country where people talk things over and they have meetings and they, 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 they make concessions to each other. If you don't want to take part in that process and just don't go to his office in the first place. I was more sympathetic towards the woman because she was interviewed later in the I think by RTL or NOS I don't remember and she was talking about how she was like was planning she wasn't thinking that she wasn't going to shake his hand and then when she got there she was so upset that she didn't want to do it uh-huh. um, but she acknowledged Rota so like I feel like that's a it's not a stand I agree with but it is like a stand like she didn't say this out loud yeah. but she looked him in the eye and she didn't shake his hand right so she sort of like picked her point and like stood on it the woman on the phone though was like <laughs> I mean not only are you not going to shake his hand but you're going to use like 
some nonsense bullshit yeah. like oh I'm on the phone and I can't like be bothered with you kind of thing. Yeah. That one I thought was really rude. It's kind of what you do when you see somebody in the street and you don't, you want, don't to want to talk to, to because you yeah. know it's your next door neighbor and they left their bin in front of your door or yeah. something in the morning. It's that kind of pettiness. Yeah. So, but it's some excellent opf and you should go watch the uh we'll link to the NOS video so you can judge for yourself. I'm curious to hear from the listeners if there's anybody who wants to defend this as like not being a rude action. Perhaps it was uh, people will see it as a form of protest. I yeah. don't know. Send us an email, podcast at dutchnews.nl, or hit Gordon and I up on, on Twitter, at Molly Quell, at Gordon Derrick, if you have a different opinion. We want to hear about it. Speaking of people who are supporting us for reasons we can't possibly understand. But we're very grateful. We are so grateful. <laughs> Just, you don't even understand how grateful we are. Yeah, this is a moment where we say thank you to our new patrons who are backing us on Patreon uh, with cash. It was very kind of them. Because we haven't recorded for two weeks, we've got a couple of people to acknowledge. As ever, each of us, our new patrons, uh, we try and find a fun fact about where they're from and they can ask us a question. So first of all, thank I you know to... this guy. I knew you knew this guy. Well, I didn't know Because he, he said <laughs> in his message that you knew him. Oh. Yeah. So Tarek Beram, oh. uh, the Pope from hey, Right. He's from Cairo, the Egyptian yeah. capital, which our fun fact about that is that it has a bigger population than the Netherlands. Yes, yes. that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's a than... lovely city and everyone should go visit. I haven't been. Yeah, you, you should go visit. It's a great place to visit. The yeah. food is really good. The pyramids are spectacular. They totally live up to all of the like photograph type that you okay. see of them. Uh, grandpa... Tarek's really nice. You can say hi to him while you're there. Right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll make a point of saying hello to him. Yeah, more than 19 million people live in the Greater Cairo area. Yeah, on the side, side note on the pyramids, my grandfather actually climbed the pyramids. Oh, wow. Because he went, he visited during the war. Yeah. And when th- there were no restrictions, yeah. really. There weren't, wasn't really mass tourism in that yeah. time. So he was, he, was a, he was a bomber pilot during the war. He was bombing the Suez Canal. And one time he was on leave, they went to the pyramids. And there's a picture of him actually on the pyramid. That is that is super cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the pyramids are worth uh, worth going to Cairo for. And he wants to know what podcasts we listen to. Oh, God, well. I have a podcast so. problem. <laughs> uh, d- d- just pick your three top podcasts. Pick my three yeah. top podcasts. Okay, so I like to listen to a lot of economics-related podcasts. And in particular, I like a podcast called Planet Money. It's from NPR. And they do kind of these short, like, 20, 30-minute deep dives into, like, weird things about economics. So they've been doing a lot of stuff on tariffs because there's been some, like, discussion about tariffs in the US right now. They also did a really interesting one recently about the Venezuelan banking system as like the Venezuelan government is like sort of falling apart. Second one, let me think, More or Less, which is uh, hosted by a British economist called Tim Harford and they do stuff on statistics in the media and how like bad journalism is at statistics, which is quite good. And I really like a podcast called Science Versus, which is like a scientific sort of journalism thing and they like investigate different questions in science and look into the research. So those are probably my like top three. What about you, Gordon? Well, I don't have as much time as a... As, as Why on earth don't you have as much time as yeah, I do? I don't mi- understand. It's a mystery. I mean, the, the time must just go faster in my house or something. It's I don't true. Know, when you've got two children. But I'm a regular listener to the Romaniacs podcast. Oh, it's obviously yeah. your daughter's with Brexit. It's uh, a Brexit which, which, is very, which is very funny yep. and um, very informative as well. And uh, yeah, it helps you kind of uh, get your whole Brexit um, uh, anger out of your system. And it also means we're we'll trying to catch up with uh, Gaslit Nation, which is... Uh, oh, about, yeah, uh, that's also a good which podcast. Is, with Sarah Kenzios. Yeah. Um, she, was right, she was a writer for The Correspondent for yeah. a while. But uh, yeah, he's quite a prolific uh, writer and uh, I think anthropologist and, and, and puts out a lot of podcasts as well. So I've got a lot of um, catching up to do there. So I hope that uh, answers your question, Tarek. Uh, we also have um, Peter Weisen, uh, who's from Santa Cruz in California. Uh, but he says he was conceived in Leiden. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he came by that information. That's but, more uh, information than I wanted to know about yeah, Peter. But uh, th- th- that's his Dutch connection. Uh, Shout out to Peter's parents. Yes. <laughs> Santa Cruz is, of course, famous as a surf town. It was one of the first places where surfing was recorded. 
hit in an account by three Hawaiian princes in 1885. It also has a surfing museum, and it was involved in a court case over the use of the name Surf City USA because uh, a nearby, nearby Huntington Beach tried to patent the name, and it was on those cases that ran on for ages and ages and ages. It was a kind of Jandai and Jandai situation, and they ended up settling without either side claiming responsibility. Wow. That <laughs> uh, sounds like a US court case. Peters asks us if the government would recognise him as a Dutch national. Um, well, we know, need to know more about your parents, sir, that one, Peter. It's not enough that they were just in Leiden when you were launched into the world. But the IND website does have a page uh, that sets all that yes. out on what the criteria are for nationality by birth. You have to have a parent, usually. My children qualify for Dutch nationality, although they were born in Scotland because they had a Dutch mother. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, basically if one of your parents is Dutch, although the, the rules have changed over the course of the years and it's not retrospective, so the rules are different if you were born before 1985 and yeah. various things. But there is a fairly clear page on the ND website about it. And finally, another Californian, John Yan Hayat, uh, who's in San Diego. Oh, John follows us on Twitter. He follows us on Twitter, yeah. yeah. He's quite a big, big fan, so hi to John. He's got an extended family in Rotterdam, he says. Uh, there's a big Dutch scene in uh, Southern California. They've got, yeah, they've apparently. Got, they've got primary school. They have King's Day celebrations. Nice. Yeah, Good so for them. He says the only thing to make the podcast better would be to have it twice a week and no summer break. We would so murder each other. We really would. We would yeah. totally murder each yeah. other. Yeah. If Paul hasn't already got plans to murder us. Yeah. Running us down his taxi <laughs> I mean, I'm the only one with a dog, so I feel like I'm the one that's in trouble here. Yeah. His question is, when is Gordon going to eat more lavender strobwafels and wash it down with strobwafel liqueur? The answer is, when we in get the... somebody to to kick us, what did you agree to? 50 bucks. Yeah. You yeah, could you could make this happen, John. You could just give us 50 bucks and then I'm going to make sure that Gordon does this. <laughs> that was just for the strobwafels, though. I think liqueur is extra. The liqueur is extra. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's going to you... be another 10 bucks. That's another 10 bucks. Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's real cheap, yeah, I have to say. Yeah, it is, really. That's yeah, we'll, very inexpensive. We will video it. We will video it. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. absolutely will. Challenge laid down. Yeah. I Just really thanks to all the people that are supporting us on Patreon. Like, we could really use the cash. This is a real bootstrapped <laughs> operation. Uh, we actually need some equipment right now to sort of improve some things about our setup. Our microphone is literally <laughs> in a little kind of plastic IKEA box wrapped up in a face cloth. It yeah. looks like kind of royal baby microphone. It does so, look like yeah. a royal baby microphone because we need to replace a part <laughs> on it. And uh, we've not been able to do that because we haven't had the money. So thanks for uh, thanks for supporting yeah. us. And if you want to join Patreon supporters, you can go to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Yes. Yeah. And ask us a weird question. Yeah, ask us an inappropriate question and uh, we'll... We'll give you an inappropriate answer. We will. This week, we'll update you on the latest political news, discuss why dog owners can feel a bit safer, and debate what the Dutch Tourism Board is going to do with all of its free time. Oh, and I hear there was, like, some stickball thing that happened, right? Yeah. In the discussion, we will talk about Europe Day and how the Netherlands stacks up against its European brethren. The search continues for someone to lead Forum for Democracy's team of senators after Thierry Baudet's mentor, Paul Couture, said he was better suited to being a number two. No arguments from us there. Yeah. Clitter, who is a professor of law at Leiden University and one of the supervisors who passed Baudet's PhD, said he had no ambitions to become leader and, as an academic, he didn't want too much of a pronounced political profile. That's obviously why he writes all those uh, articles in newspapers as well. Before joining FED, Clitter had been a supporter of the right-wing liberal FED and the animal rights party Partei for de Dieren. So, yeah, he's a pretty uh, promiscuous political he, animal. He gets around. He, he is does. that what you're saying? In, in political terms, yes. Yeah. I, I'd hate to think what else he does. Uh, the FAA is expected to have 13 senators in the new years to Gamma, but its leading candidate, uh, as was Henk Otten, was forced to stand down amid allegations of financial impropriety. The Senate will be elected by provincial assembly members on May the 27th. So I guess they better hurry up. Yeah, they, they, they're running out of time. And what else have uh, Dutch politicians been up to in Europe this week? Yeah, there's been a couple of notable contributions on the uh, EU stage. First up, Finance Minister Vopke Hoekstra said Europe needed to deal with the fact that the 
proportion of its citizens wanted to leave. He was giving a speech at Berlin's Humboldt University and he called for the EU to carry out a fundamental revision of its values, but also to get tougher on countries that didn't pull its weight. So it's more strict and stern and generally more Dutch EU he wants yeah, to see. Of course. Yeah. Uh, nations that failed to meet budget targets, refused to take their share of migrants or flouted standards of justice, should have their funding cut, Huxley argued. He didn't name names, but he said some countries were guilty of rosinpickerei, which in good Dutch is cherry picking, he yes. said. He actually said that. I, I appreciate his usage <laughs> of proper Dutch. Also, Mark Rutte has been at the latest EU summit in Sibiu in Romania, which has been officially declared a Brexit-free summit. Oh, God. Can we declare just like a Brexit-free life? Well, yeah, Brexit -free I, I would certainly like this to be a Brexit-free podcast from now on. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. It's not going to happen, is it? Yeah. Rutte said the talks were aimed at creating a more effective union, and they're also drawing up a 10-point plan that will form the basis of the European Commission's agenda for the next few years, once the Brits have buggered off. But of course, there was also plenty of speculation about Rutter's own position and whether he's being sounded out as a candidate to replace Donald Tusk as Commission President. The main decision so far has been to hold another summit in June it's after the European sounds elections. Sounds very European. And uh, there was some uh, Heinstyle uh, Ophef. Yes, uh, Heinstyle at the centre of Ophef, as they usually are, uh, so it's where they love, love to be. Bart Neyman, who's the deputy director of Heinstyle, protested to Twitter after his account was suspended for spreading fake news, allegedly. Um, he retweeted a column that was urging voters who usually stay home for the European elections to turn out this time with a comment, quote, it's time to give the drunks a populist bashing, so vote Eurosceptic on May 23rd. Is is that a dig at uh, our Luxembourgish EU president who it's, likes to have wine with lunch? I think it might be something okay. to do with that, yeah. It's, it's very subtle and sophisticated. Kane style doctored an image of Rob Yetten, leader of Days and Zestach, with the text Free Bart Neumann and claimed the fake news reporting system was being used to stifle free speech like the snowflake that he is. Twitter later reinstated Neumann. It said the suspension was human error, but Neumann claimed it was lifted, quote, due to the media attention. Sounds dangerously like another bout of fake news. It does sound like a bit like fake news. Yeah. Also, I mean, I think Neumann overstates his... Uh, case of people who are paying attention to his Twitter account. He just generally overstates his own personal significance in all regards. Yeah. Dog walkers can breathe a bit easier. Police have arrested a 27-year-old man in connection with the murder of three people who are out walking their dogs. Tice H., whose full name is not being released, was wanted in connection with two people found dead in the Heathland in Limburg on Tuesday and with a woman whose body was found in the woods near Scheveningen at the weekend. Both were out walking their dogs when they were killed in what police said were, quote, violent incidents. Yeah. So pretty alarming. What do we know more about the suspect? Uh, we know he's 27. According to his LinkedIn profile, he's working on a thesis for a master's degree in industrial ecology at TU Delft. Um, that's a joint program with Leiden University. He has a bachelor's degree in cultural anthropology from Leiden University. According to The Telegraph, he lives in The Hague in a student house, but has spent a great deal of time in the south of Limburg. His parents apparently live in Brunsum. According to a flatmate, he, quote, was a clever guy, but was also somber with black moods who spent a lot of time in his room. And the flatmate also uh, told the Telegraph, I would avoid the kitchen if he was there because he gave off this uneasy vibe. The suspect is currently only allowed to access his lawyer and no more information is being released, police said in a short statement. Don't want to say about this. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm glad they caught him. It's yeah. brutal killings. And, it is, uh, yeah. And um, one of them was in the Schaeftings of Bosches where I, uh, until recently, um, I used to go running regularly, yeah. although not with a dog. But uh, yeah. nevertheless, uh, you can't it's take Truby, You can't take Truby out for a walk anymore. No, I'm afraid I'm worried not. about serial killers. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wouldn't be able to run away anymore either. No, this, uh, Truby would though. Truby 
would be out of there. Yeah, he's not. Okay. He's not interested. In that, 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 that's all you're really interested. Yeah. in. Yeah, I guess in the guy's defense, they he didn't kill the dogs, just the people. <laughs> this is yeah, I suppose. So, uh, I'm sure his lawyer will lean on that heavily. Probably. Yeah, uh, but no, it was, it, these are pretty. Yeah, it's a pretty nasty business. Yeah, it's and, uh, real. We don't it's have, real terrible. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I can't think of many cases of multiple killings uh, in the Netherlands. It's no. not really a. Yeah, it's common, not usually a common, common thing that like yeah. happens here. So yeah. I mean, shout out to the police for catching this guy basically after a second incident um you know yeah. sometimes you hear about these cases and they go on for years and years like in the u.s or something Indeed. where they kill 17 people before the police catch them yeah and all the victims are kind of uh, not elderly but older as yeah. in sort of in the 50s or 60s exactly so he seems to have talked and then one person you say had talked about um she'd been unnerved that he'd been following, following her, her when he was walking a dog yeah. so it looks as if he is targeting people of a, of a specific group as yeah. in dog walkers who who are of a certain of age. a certain age yeah, yeah. Hundreds of products sold in Dutch shops with the organic label came from farms which have broken food standards rules, according to RTL News. Nearly one in ten organic farmers did not comply with all the rules, according to a report by Monitoring Body Skull, which is obtained under Freedom of Information legislation. That was based on more than 1,500 inspection reports, focusing on areas such as the use of medicines, environmental protection and animal welfare. Farmers that have been given an official warning are still allowed to sell their products as organic, 40 warnings are issued for dirty barns and animals being kept in confined spaces, while 20 fruit and vegetable growers were found to have used restricted chemicals such as fertilisers and pesticides. Scale director Nicoletta Klein said farmers who'd been given one or two warnings could still sell their produce as organic because, quote, like a school report, you can have one or two fails. But she did say later, perhaps we should issue a red card more often. Oh, okay. So she switched from kind of sort of schoolroom metaphors to uh, sporting Football metaphors, uh, yeah, in, in, with alarming pace. Honestly, I'm surprised that this number isn't higher, that it's not, like not higher than one in ten, because it yeah. seems like a, a thing that I think has not always super clear regulation and like not a ton of enforcement and i think you could just like get away with it more yeah there's not a ton of enforcement there's a lot of rules and i suppose it's not seen as urgent because this isn't really dangerous to health it's just about the fact that if you want to sell your products as organic um then you have to meet all these comply with all these rules and that means obviously the price of your product goes up yeah so the amount of the you know what the consumer pays right uh, there's a premium they pay for the fact they're getting organic chicken rather than yeah. regular chicken um yeah d- d- depends on the fact the consumer trusts you to be actually meeting yeah. the standards so yeah it's more of a trust issue than a, yeah. than a safety issue I yeah i would agree with that yeah. two reports out this week find intimidation bullying and scientific sabotage are common among staff at dutch universities and colleges the first report done by researchers at Radboud University in Nijmegen on behalf of the National Network of Women Professors, is based on the experiences of 53 women in academic university roles and looks at six types of harassment, ranging from physical and sexual threats to academic sabotage. The second report by trade unions FNV and VAVO is based on interviews with 1,100 university staff members, around one-third of whom were support staff. That report found bullying, exclusion, sexual intimidation, and power abuse are common throughout the country's 13 universities. Okay, and what sort of things uh, were people reporting here? Harassment in academia seldom manifests itself as a single isolated incident. Research participants hardly ever reported about one single remark, one single touch, or one single gesture. Rather, the harassment they experienced was structural and lasted for months, years, or even decades, said the report. Uh, One respondent said, my work was plagiarized by a professor and I was told to keep quiet about it or I would lose my job. I mean, other things included sort of 
you know, sexual harassment, mm. it's inappropriate touching, like sort of it, the implication that if you, you know, engaged in sexual relationships that that would somehow better your career. Women were more likely than men, apparently, to find out that to have their work plagiarized or to have themselves be uh, left off as authors of academic papers and that sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you've worked in academic environments while you've been in the Netherlands. Do yes. you sense that there is a culture of harassment or that, that, it's, that it's not um, dealt with effectively? Um, yeah, unequivocally, <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I am currently on a contract with the, with the TU Delft, uh, and as part of my contract, I am not allowed to do uh, research and work about the TU, uh, which is a fair thing for, mm-hmm. for them to require a journalist to do, so that's fine. Um, but I will say kind of more broadly in my experience in working at universities, not just in the Netherlands, but in other countries, that, you know, there, there's like kind of a combination of things that happen. I think one is, is that like sometimes universities delude themselves into thinking that they're very like progressive and so that people often sort of criticize like companies for like not doing enough to kind of promote diversity and they're not like always very inward looking at their own problems. Mm. I often, I also think that like universities are often public institutions where the concept of like firing people um, or demoting them is, you know, can be much more like that. There's often a lot more bureaucracy and that sort of stuff involved. And so people I think are less hesitant. It's very hard to fire Mm. someone from a university, especially a professor with tenure. So I think yeah. that, that that also like plays a role in it. Yeah. But yeah, in my experience, these reports did not surprise me. Yeah, but do you think there's a, uh, a sense of complacency that because a university is a liberal institution with you know, full of enlightened people that uh, this sort of thing, people assume that this doesn't yeah. happen? Yeah, I, I think they're, that they're, that they're, plays they're, a they're huge role that. Is, yeah. is that, you know, people sort of fancy themselves to be kind of quote unquote woke, basically, if yeah. they work at a university, right? That like, you know, a lot of people that work at universities would have the opportunities to make a lot more money if they they were working in industry, but they've sort of chosen this path and sometimes they feel quite noble about it. And I, I feel like in some ways it is noble, but as a result of this sort of mindset, it creates a space where people think that this kinds of stuff doesn't happen, which yeah. of course makes it a lot harder for people to believe and to act on it when there is evidence that it is happening. Yeah, because the classic response you get, isn't it, when somebody, particularly somebody senior, is um, uh, is accused or actually found to have um, been systematically harassing people, it's kind of, you know, why you want to destroy this man's career Correct. when he's done so much good yeah. in his field. <laughs> and I think the fact that, you know, there's not that many universities in the Netherlands, and if you want to continue living and working here, you sort of have to play ball in these like very small and insular environments right that like it's hard to i mean academic research a lot of times is a very small like sort of space that like even worldwide and so like if you narrow it down to a small country like the netherlands you don't have a lot of options of places to go if you are a researcher who wants to continue doing the work that you're doing okay so do a better job universities yeah yeah speaking of places that need to do a better job (laughs) this is a great great segue yeah, Go ahead, is. Gordon. <laughs> okay. Tell us all about it. Yes, it's, it's time to t- turn our attention to the stick balls. The stick balls. Because for 95 minutes of a pulsating Champions League semi-final, Ajax looked to have just enough to see off Tottenham Hotspur, but then came the hammer blow. A swipe of Lucas Moura's left boot slipped the ball underneath the arm of Andre Onana to give Spurs an unlikely win and send them through to the final against Liverpool. Heartbreak then for Ajax's fans and players who played 18 games to reach this stage of the competition, starting out last July against Sturm Graz and taking victories in Madrid, Turin and London. Manager Erik ten Hag said the manner of defeat was, quote, bitter and cruel, but his team now has to gather itself for the last two league matches against Utrecht and de Graafschap so that they can win their first Eredivisie title in five years. 
Uh, so I actually saw that something happened about this on Twitter because yeah. it was kind of a big deal. So how did the... Quite a lot of people tweet about it. How yeah. did the media react? The, well, the most media have uh, been full of praise for this uh, Ajax team ever since they beat uh, Real Madrid uh, in, in two rounds ago. Uh, it's been described as a young side, although we shouldn't overlook the role played by veterans like Lasse Schoener and uh, Dusan Tadic. Uh, the New York Times summed it up in a great piece of old-fashioned uh, sports writing. It was not supposed to end like this. A season of such joy was not supposed to lead to such pain. The BBC said Ajax had, quote, entertained us all with their brave campaign, which is a bit patronising, uh, given they're actually a pretty good side. Uh, other sports papers were a bit more critical. Gazzetta della Sport in Italy said Ajax had let Tottenham back into the game by refusing to compromise on their attacking strategy, so they should have been more boring, basically. On the other hand, the Süddeutsche Zeitung thought they'd been too defensive and uh, only rarely showed flashes of their football and brilliance. Either way, Ajax are now out, and I think the manner that they lost literally in the last second and the players went to the ground as if they'd just been shot was uh, yeah, in, in, in one of the most dramatic things I've seen in sport uh, for, for a while. Yeah, it, it seemed like it was very intense. Yeah. So what was this op-hef about the uh, the winning goal? There's a little bit of op-hef about it. I don't think Erik Den Haag made a huge point of it, but he questioned if the team should have still been playing because the official time of the goal was five minutes and four seconds after 90 minutes uh, and five minutes of injury time had been indicated. But during the injury time, Ajax's goalkeeper Andre Onana was booked for wasting time at a free uh. kick or to, when he was taking a free kick. And, he was, uh, and the referee said he would play an extra minute. So if anything, Onana's attempt to kind of uh, spin out the time actually backfired on him. Um, but the simple answer would be to have an independent time referee, like they're doing most other professional sports. Yeah, but, I can't uh, get over this. The first time I watched like a, a soccer match, and I was like, "But what do you mean they just like make up like yeah. like how does this yeah. work? They this just is, randomly add ridiculous. a number of minutes that feels about right, yeah. even though it doesn't correspond at all to how many minutes they've actually lost in the goals yeah, to play." Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there was a there was some slight more alpef related to uh, to this game because mm. there was a footballer who got fired for calling in sick so that he could go to the Ajax match, right? Yep, Jordi van der Land, who plays for Telstar, who in the Upper League, so the second division. Yeah, he 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 got a ticket. Um, for the Ajax, Ajax's first leg uh, in London against Tottenham um, but unfortunately he, he wasn't very clever he didn't go in disguise or anything else and he was actually picked out in the crowd and his employers saw him and he's now been sacked yep. so he was absent for work for four days uh, altogether and he did say afterwards in retrospect uh, maybe that uh, going to the game wasn't his best career move yeah, think? I just called in sick and of course it wasn't the best decision in the end someone found out yeah. who would have thought someone would have found out that you were at a game that was on live television watched by millions of people and that you're a footballer so people know who <laughs> you are yeah yeah some excellent uh, sports news this week Speaking of cross-border tourism, the Dutch Tourist Board is going to stop promoting the Netherlands as a holiday destination because its main attractions are becoming overcrowded. The NBTC, or the Netherlands Board of Tourism and Conventions, will instead focus on trying to spread visitors to other parts of the country by putting the spotlight on unknown areas. I hope those unknown areas do not include Delft because I do not want the tourists to come here. I think Delft is quite well known. Okay, good. They can go somewhere else then. The organization expects at least 29 million tourists will visit the Netherlands a year by 2030, which is compared to 19 19 million in 2018. That's huge. I mean, that's, uh, that's yeah. a that's a big increase. Far more people than actually live here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they've concluded that too many tourists is not always a good thing. So this Easter, the Kokenhof Bulb Garden and Kinderdijk Windmill District were impossible to reach for a time because so many people had turned out to visit them. The congestion forced the director of the Kokenhof to describe the situation as quote completely unacceptable for locals. Amsterdam too has been grappling with over tourism and is attempting to spread visitors throughout the city. 
uh, anyone that's been to any of these tourist places on like a sunny day knows that like yeah. it's just a mess. It's just absolutely mobbed, Chaos. basically. Yeah. yeah, and everyone, yeah, I think uh, alarming numbers of people actually don't realize there is a country beyond Amsterdam. Yeah, they almost think that yeah, the Amsterdam's the name of the I country. I mean, as someone who doesn't live in Amsterdam, I'm kind of fine with this. Yeah, like, me too. Please absolutely. don't come to. Yeah, my... and if you come, please don't rent a bike. Yeah. Either. Also, yeah. D- yeah, don't don't cycle. <laughs> yeah. uh, learn to not walk in the cycle path immediately. Yeah, or in front of the trams. Yeah. We'll be discussing how great the Netherlands is compared to other countries in Europe after this word from our sponsors. Hey you, you, listening to the podcast for free. We're really glad you all like our OPEF coverage and Dick Laureate jokes, but it costs money to bring them to your ears. If you have a few extra bucks and you would like to support the work we do, you can now back us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl to donate. We will give a shout out to all our backers on the podcast. If you donate 50 euros, Gordon will dedicate the next podcast to his love of lavender stroopwafels. For 75 euros, Molly will watch one entire football match. And for the low, low, low amounts of 100 euros, I will vote for the Socialist Party in the next election. So please go to patreon.com slash DutchNewsNL to support us and keep Truby fed, which is very important. Gordon, did you celebrate Europe Day? I might have done if I'd known (laughs) what it was or when it was. Uh, what is Europe Day? It occurs every year on May 9th. That is the anniversary of the day in 1950 when the creation of a European coal and steel community, which is the forerunner to the European <laughs> Union, was first proposed. So you're basically asking me if I celebrated Europe merging its coal and steel production and uh, yes. markets. Did you not? No. Oh. Funnily enough. But you're a European. Shouldn't you be very proud of this? Well, kind of, but the UK didn't join until the 1970s and was blocked by Charles de Gaulle and all kinds of shenanigans went on. And now, of course, we're leaving. And you're leaving. So, yeah. Peace and out. So why are we talking about it? We are talking about this because you are a proud European for, I don't know, like two more months or some shit like that. <laughs> and then, and may, maybe for longer if I, if I switch to another European nationality at yeah. some point in the near future. That yeah. could happen, yeah. yeah. But the National Statistics Agency, CBS, my favourite of all of the Dutch agencies, mm. has published a ranking of 21 key figures showing how the Netherlands compares to the other 27, soon to be 26, countries in the European Union. Yeah, so what are these 21 subjects that they've uh, investigated? Are you ready? Young people, migration, studying internationally, unemployment, freelancers, economic growth, waste, greenhouse gases, renewable energy, organic farming, public finances, healthcare, life expectancy, poverty, house prices, car ownership, internet, holidays, trade and goods, and trust and well-being. Why do that all in one breath? Yeah. Amazing. I'm exhausted. (laughs) Gonna take a break. That seems like a bit of a mixed bag. It is. It's a real. It's a real. It's sort of two reasons. One is because the CBS thinks that these are like interesting and relevant statistics to look at. Um, The other reason is is that data is available on these subjects from across all comparable data is available yeah. uh, across all countries so you can like sort of you can make actually a meaningfully decent... compare exactly and also some i always always know when you ever go into eurostat looking things up yeah. often you find different countries have got statistics from different years yeah like italy won't have updated statistics since 2015 or right something. So yeah or they're they, you know they do stuff on drugs but they all like count the the potency of drugs differently yeah, so it's yeah. like can be hard difficult to compare so all of these stats there was data available and where how does the netherlands fare where does it rank uh, what's it particularly strong in first of all it is strong in the internet young yeah. people employment poverty and trash yeah so, so, 
again, <laughs> a, a real mixed bag. So everything from well, the internet and trash kind of overlap quite a lot. Okay? Yeah, of course. That's fair enough. So, um, so the, the Netherlands is the most connected country in Europe. Ninety-eight uh, percent of households have access to the internet. That's compared to eighty-nine percent of the EU average. I'd say, the, I'd say that that's a fairly astonishing figure. It's really ninety-eight percent. Ninety-eight percent. Yeah. Uh, you, some of that is mobile phone usage, of course, not necessarily yeah. like computers uh, per se at home. Um, but yeah, that's quite connected. The, the Netherlands is a real, really connected country. Yeah. Um, on the, unemployment here is lower than in the rest of Europe. It's 4% compared to 7.2% and the EU as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, and unemployment's always come, historically tend to be lower than yeah. it. Because, I mean, even I think uh, at the height of uh, the, the yeah. financial crisis in 2008, it was around about 7% mm. compared to, you know, some countries got well into double figures. Right. The employment rate might be partially the cause of the next positive thing about the Dutch, which is that poverty is low. Yeah. So 17% of the Dutch population faces financial issues with 3% in acute hardship. Um, that's compared to 22.4% and 6.6% respectively in the EU as a whole. Yeah, and so, that, yeah, I think that also, also reflects the fact that the welfare state is still fairly fairly big and, yeah. uh, and well managed here compared to other countries. Yeah. Same compared to Britain where I just keep seeing reports of people saying that you know everything's been hollowed out yeah. basically and there's, there's fewer and fewer welfare spending and benefits available. Yeah, um, the, unsurprisingly when you compare these, the uh, the countries that do well are you know the sort of Scandinavian countries and these yeah. places where there's a strong welfare state um, and poor, less you know economically advantaged countries are the ones that do worse. Yeah, because another stat I saw actually in this report is that income equality, sorry, income inequality is lower yeah. in the Netherlands compared to most countries, and yeah. there's quite a strong correlation between the countries with the lowest risk of poverty and the countries that have the smallest income um, inequality. Income inequality. Yeah, yeah. so income yeah. inequality referring to the difference between the highest wage yes. earners and the yeah. lowest wage earners. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's that does not I don't think surprises most people who sort of are familiar with uh, poverty studies. Young people are less likely to live at home here and the Netherlands produces less trash. Yeah. Yeah. So... So yeah. despite all those shrink-wrapped cucumbers, uh, we still are Indeed. Uh, producing yeah. less trash. Yeah, than just don't get that while your cucumber comes covered in plastic mm. in the supermarket. I but, don't know. Yeah, but I think that, that that first one to me is really interesting. That's one of the great generational shifts. I think that about one in three people under twenty-five live at home still yeah. with their parents, which lots of EU countries around about seventy yeah. percent of people under twenty-five are still haven't moved out of their family home. Yeah. Because whereas I, I think you know in, in my generation, I think the majority had left home yeah. before they were twenty-five. Yeah. But, you know, people can't afford to rent or buy houses yeah. any longer at that age. And so it's changed. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I bought my first house in my late 20s when I was a couple of years younger than the average first-time buyer. Yeah. And I'm still a couple of around about the age of the first-time buyer now because yeah. it's just moved up in step yeah. with, with, with my age. Yeah, yeah. I thought actually when, when we were buying the house uh, this summer, I, I'm a couple of years older than my partner is. And so I yeah. actually thought that I was going to be kind of like old for the first-time mm-hmm. home buyers. And then our Macalar and our uh, notary were both making comments about how like we were kind of young to be able to yeah. have done this um and that i was kind of surprised by that because i was in my mid-30s so it seemed like you know sort of you had this sense that people usually buy their houses in their late 20s and early 30s but no, that's not just anymore. like not a true no anymore. no i think these days it's quite i think the average age is uh around about or maybe even over 40 yeah. in a lot of countries have that so i started thinking yesterday in germany it's, it's i think it's 48 yeah and i know germans have less a lower rate of home buying than yeah uh, other European countries, but even so, that's astonishingly old. The Netherlands is an astonishingly house. high rate of home ownership. That's the other thing, yeah, there's a huge yeah. number of home owners, and also I think, uh, I'm right in saying that Dutch people have the highest who own houses with mortgages. Yes. There's yeah. relatively the large rate of home ownership, but relatively few people have actually 
paid uh, cash. Pay, paid cash or yeah. paid off their mortgages. Paid off their mortgages, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, that we didn't, I included the statistics about mortgages a bit later because it was, you right. know, it's one of these things where it's like, well, you know, is this good or is this bad necessarily? Yeah. Because I think that, I think there's a lot of debate as to whether or not this is like actually the whole sort of like having more homeowners and people with mortgages is a good thing or a bad thing. And there's a lot of, I think, debate um, in economic circles about like how positive these things are that, or how negative they are necessarily. So we sort of, I sort of left that in the neutral category. Yeah. Um, but in the not good category, uh, yes. do you want to, uh, do you want to guess what the, the Netherlands is the worst at? Uh, this would be something to do with um, probably food production. I say. It is food production. Uh, organic farming. Right. Only 3% of Dutch agricultural land was dedicated to organic farming. That's about half of the EU average. Austria and Estonia top the list with wow. 23 and 20% respectively. And of course, as we know from earlier in the podcast, at least some of that 3% is fake news because <laughs> some of those yes. farmers are not actually meeting yeah, organic farming meeting requirements. The standards, yeah. That does surprise me, I've got to say, given yeah. there's such a big agri- agricultural industry yeah. and it's a technologically advanced society yeah. and very well regulated, yeah. you'd have thought that, and people I think generally are quite well disposed, well, not everybody, but you know, there's quite a large Green Party, Green yeah. Links, you'd have thought that... And with low more, levels of poverty that people can like afford yeah, to buy this exactly. stuff. They afford to pay more for um yeah um for, for organic food. Yeah, I I got kind of curious about this and I'm going to actually look into this this weekend because we get like a farm share box um that's run by like a local farm here mm-hmm. in Delft and we also buy all of our dairy products um from this like sort of same like small local farm. We do that because I believe strongly in supporting like small um and local like sort of businesses. Um you know, I've just kind of been to this farm and you can sort of see that the animals are well treated, which is kind of the thing I care about in like consuming animal products less mm-hmm. than like organicness. I actually have no idea if these products are organic or not. It's like not a thing that I care about, so I didn't really like ever look into this. But I'm curious now to find Find out if this like small farm where I buy stuff from has this like organic certification or if they've just like not bothered. And maybe yeah. that's part of the reason that this number is is so low is that like maybe there's just people like me that like care a little bit less. I'm not sure. I'm, yeah. I'm sort of curious. I think it's a, like kind of an interesting like thing. I don't really know what the answer is to it. Yeah, but it is. Uh, it did definitely stand out. Um, and yeah, another one that's uh, I think is surprising. Is, Are you uh, ready for this? Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Netherlands spends a lot on healthcare, yeah. which is uh, crazy considering they <laughs> basically don't give you any medication for anything. They, yeah, they spend more than the EU average. Uh, that's a that's a lot of paracetamol. Um, in particular, they spend a lot on long-term healthcare. So yeah. that's like sort of elderly, older people who have like kind of long-term healthcare. Yeah, if like you've got needs. chronic, chronic health yeah. problems, yeah, you have an awful lot of, yeah. And I suppose the quality of care is very good. And yeah. There's, uh, you know, the technology is advanced. So yeah, you get really kind of um, state-of-the-art healthcare when yeah. you get it. And so that that's more expensive. Also, I suspect a lot of money being spent on physiotherapy appointments. Yeah, lots of money on physiotherapy appointments. I suspect a more cynical person might say a lot of money on follow-up appointments at the doctor because you don't get treated like the first time around. Um, But if you're going to complain about us complaining about the healthcare system, you can send all of your complaints to Gordon at Dutch News. uh, (laughs) No, but I'm not complaining about the quality of the healthcare, far from it. But it it doesn't surprise me that it's more expensive. And I think definitely the the amount that you have to pay for your um, health insurance goes up uh, every year by, by quite substantial amount yeah so that uh, that's not wholly surprising yeah i don't i mean as sort of an american like i'm just endlessly amazed at how cheap the healthcare is here because like mm. i'm used to paying substantially more so some of this is yeah. like that's because you have to actually pay for the treatment when you get the treatment yeah and, and you like, also you pay for health insurance bill. that costs a lot of money yeah, yeah. so a, i mean it's, it's just bonkers. yeah it's bonkers um, so for me, it, everything seems very cheap here. So maybe I am different, different. Yeah, it depends a bit on like what your perspective is. Yeah. Um, so other weird things of note that came from this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the Dutch spent less than the EU average on holidays in a year. You thought that was surprising? I thought that this was incredibly surprising. But they all take their own food with them in tins from the butcher when they go camping. Yeah, but doesn't and, and that count camping. as like holiday spending? Yeah, they do go camping. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Dutch spend an average of 830 euros on a holiday, which is below the EU yeah, average of 857. I, I would have thought it would be, would be lower, actually. And is this per holiday or is this how it's much per, they spend totally? I believe it's per holiday, right. basically. Yeah, they I do take more holidays as they well. They do take more average. holidays. They take three so, holidays a year. Yeah. I think the average is about two and a half. Yeah. So. The Swedes and the Danes are the biggest spenders. Right. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was interesting. Did you yeah. did you come up with anything interesting from the uh, from the report? From was the, there anything that you th- like, thought that stood out to you? Yeah, one thing that really puzzled me actually was that um, apparently women have uh, much lower uh, life expectancy in terms of the years of uh, active life than um, uh, than the EU average. I, so I know. life expectancy is a little bit above average. I mean, it's fairly... It's even across the board, actually. It's one of these statistics that doesn't vary much. But uh, for some reason, women have less than 60 years of healthy life compared to nearly 65 on average in, across the EU. I, and, I, can, and, and, I can tell you why that is. Okay. I know. Um, it's because women have to put up with men. <laughs> but that happens in every country. Yeah, but have you ever met Dutch men, Gordon? <laughs> I've met some Dutch men. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it, why. It that's your excuse. not bad to me. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, babe. Could, maybe, maybe I should have warned uh, warned my partner to turn the podcast off. No, I do think it is. It is kind of like a curious, um, sort of like a curious statistic. And there wasn't really an explanation for necessarily like what the difference is. So I, and it's a, it's a substantial difference. It's a substantial like difference, and it's not that big for men. Men are men do have slightly fewer. I think again, about something like sixty two years uh, yeah. off the top of my head uh, of active life, right? Um, which is a little bit lower low than yeah. your average. Again, that kind of surprises me, given that you always think of this as a country. Where people are generally healthy yeah. and well fed. Maybe it's just maybe it's just, I know that if you're exceptionally tall, you often uh, live less long because actually you know, your body has to work your harder as a work harder to pump oh, that blood around that big it. area. So maybe, maybe it's the height. It. I don't know. Yeah. It, it is a generally it is interesting. It, it was generally uh, a bit surprising. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Maybe we'll try to yeah. dig into this yeah. at some point. I'm just seeing looking into this further that uh, Swedish women get 73 years of active life compared to 57. I think it's just because just Swedish men are better yeah. than Dutch men. That's yeah, what that, it could be with. it. Yeah, yeah, you reckon. Yeah, so so uh, so the answer is marry a Swede. Yeah, marry a Swede. Yeah. It's a good advice. They're lovely people. <laughs> That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl, unless you want to complain about something, and then you can send it to gordon at dutchnews.nl. Please do, because I don't use that email address. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can now back us on Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Um, you can earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. Uh, gordon will try to say nice things about you. And can someone please donate enough money so that we can make him eat more strope waffle? It's, it's $60. No, $60 if you want For, the strope waffle well, with, with the liqueur. liqueur. Oh, yeah. We, sh- we should give a shout out to you uh, next week. You're going to be in the oh, ABC yeah. in in the in Amsterdam. Yes, absolutely. If you want to hear me talk about my book, uh, which is a memoir about um, cancer and uh, immigrating, but it's not all it's not all doom and gloom. Anyway, I'm going to be at the ABC bookstore in uh, on Sparrow in Amsterdam uh, on Thursday night, yes. the uh, 16th of May. I believe I will be joining you. Right. Um, and I will be bringing lavender strope waffles. Yeah, and you'll, you'll also be traveling with me in the car, which is uh, going to be a. Yeah. It, oh, have we agreed uh, to that? Oh, God. You, this yeah, is I think so. Be yeah, it'll be a goal experience for at least one of us. Well, I need to stop yeah. by the Albert Hein on the way so I can pick you up some <laughs> lavender strope waffles. My thanks to Gordon Derrick, not to Paul Paters, because we think he's a we serial don't know what killer. He's doing. We don't yeah. know what he's doing. I'm Molly Quell, and we'll be back next week.